My body, my choice. This simple phrase can make you the hero of a group or the villain. It depends on the scenario, and it definitely depends on the political spectrum of the crowd. For those who are on the left, you can hold up a poster that says, My body, my choice, and it is deemed heroic if you're talking about the topic of abortion. This is consistently a hot topic. Sadly, it's things that politics use to kind of try to get votes. It seems like we haven't actually made good ground, but there was something recently where the, the, the great country of Texas uh, established legislation uh, to try to get rid of abortion. And the argument goes, you have no right to tell a female what she can do with her body. In fact, in the last few weeks, they made it even more clear. I've seen headlines that says males should not be the one making laws about a woman's body. So if you're at this kind of rally, you can hold up this sign with pride and say, my body, my choice, as long as it's at a pro-choice rally. But for those who are on the right, you can also make this poster, hold it up high and say, my body, my choice. You are heroic if you hold this up, if you're on the right, on the, the right political spectrum and you're talking about the latest vaccine mandates. The argument for you goes, Joe Biden has no right to tell me what to do with my body. I live in America, therefore I will choose or not choose what to do with my body and what I put in it. Ironically, The right could hold up the very same sign. My body, my choice, as long as you hold it at the right rally against vaccine mandates. Go to the other side and you will quickly become the villain if you're saying my body, my choice. See, before you send emails to Caleb at (laughs) passioncreek.church, I don't want to talk about government policies tonight. I am not a politician. I'm a pastor. And so I do have opinions, especially about abortion, and I pray that we get rid of that evil. I don't have as much opinion as you probably would like about vaccinations. But I want to make one simple point. Don't get distracted with that. Our society has a fragmented view at best when it comes to our flesh and our freedoms. And so does the church. And so I believe it's at the heart of most believers' dysfunction. Additionally, though, as I continue to pastor, I think it's at the heart of believers' discouragement in following the way of Jesus, their misunderstanding of the flesh and what freedom really is. And I believe the Bible has a lot to say about this topic. And so I want us to begin by defining flesh. So the flesh, first off, the flesh is not to be confused with the body. Most people make this error and it makes sense, but don't, okay? Our bodies are actually a gift from God. It's actually a platonic view to say when we die and go to heaven, we're just a soul. That is not gospel. Jesus resurrected, has a resurrected body. And he says, this is my invitation to you. When you believe in me, you will also have a resurrected body for eternity. What this means is bodies are a beautiful thing. They're simply, some translations say vessels. Other translations say instruments. They are instruments or vessels that can be used for righteousness, but they can equally be used for wickedness. And so the flesh is when we take our bodies and use it for wickedness. 
Timothy George in his commentary in Galatians 5, which we're about to read, Galatians, uh, Galatians 5. But Timothy George has a great quote kind of summarizing what is the flesh. As we dive into this topic tonight, what does it even mean? Here it should be on the screen. Flesh refers to fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing. Flesh is the, and I underline this, arena of indulgence and self-assertion. The locale in which the ultimate sin reveals itself to be the false assumption of receiving life, not as the gift of the creator, but procuring it by one's own power of living from oneself rather than from God. Pick out a few key phrases in here like indulgence, self-assertion, one's own power. And if you have an honest reading of the Bible, that is not the way of Jesus. The Bible is constantly comparing and contrasting the flesh with the spirit. So for us to understand the flesh, we must also understand the spirit. Read Galatians 5, 16 through 17 with me. Galatians 5, 16 says, I say then, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. You see that compare and contrast here. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit. These two things are at odds. And the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can identify with this inward battle of desire. Amen? Part of you and your deepest parts of your affections, you really, really want to become like Jesus. And other parts of you, you really just want to do whatever you want. And that struggle is you fill both of those desires. One is of the flesh One is of the Spirit. Some of you, you long to be a man or a woman of prayer. I know for me, I love to read biographies. And guys like Martin Luther say, I don't have an, like, he says, I am so busy. I have to pray four hours in the morning before I start every day. I love that. But it's also so discouraging because who has four hours, right? So we have that desire. I want to be a man of God. I want to be a woman of God who prays. But we also love to binge Ted Lasso, right? And so it's this combination. Do I go on YouTube and Netflix or do I actually be a man or woman of prayer? And that's why your view of this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 is a bit complex because your spirit loves this. Live, walk in holiness, please God with all that you do. But at the same time, your flesh despises this. And in fact, thinks it's not good for you. And even more so, our flesh thinks that this is impossible to live out. When Jesus says, keep away from sexual immorality. So let's look at that again, where it says in uh, verse 3, this is God's will, your sanctification. Sanctification is this process. A pastor that I uh, sat under during my time at CBU, it's the most common, easy illustration ever. But he literally says, it's like, imagine this is Jesus and this is you. And when you get saved, you're kind of like him. But the process of sanctification is you're slowly becoming more and more aligned with the way of Jesus. Now, that's the beautiful part. It's like, yes, don't we all want to be sanctified? But there's so many words here, even through one through four, that can kind of like rub you the wrong way, especially if you're in the flesh. You receive this instruction on how you should live. What do you mean you're telling me what to do? God, I thought you were here just to love me. Why are you giving me commands? And how you should please God. When we read this, we think, do I please God? Can I please God? Do I have that within me? He says, you know, the commands we gave you. This is God's will. What? Keep away from sexual immorality. 
Even more so, it seems like it's impossible because verse 4, each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. How can we control? And I think a quick reading of this passage, you and I, we maybe feel like this passage is possibly too demanding. This passage is too legalistic. We're saying, okay, if I don't follow this, does God not love me anymore? It talks about pleasing God, but I don't think I can ever please God. How do I do this? And I think this, is, this rubs us the wrong way because, and this should be in your notes, our flesh on a daily basis whispers into your ear, you rob your soul when you surrender control. Our flesh believes this lie. In order for us to be happy, we have to be in control. And so we read something about Jesus, Paul, God, he's telling us, don't live this certain way. It's like, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I think is best for me. The world, the flesh, the devil, they're on a constant marketing campaign to convince you. And here's the big thing. Freedom is found through the flesh. This is kind of a new development. Freedom is found through the flesh. In other words, do what you want, whenever you want, however you want to. It's your body. It's your choice. And the marketing is this is truly freedom. The biblical narrative knows that that's a lie. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit teach us the exact opposite. In fact, if you read your Bibles, you recognize freedom is found not through the flesh. In fact, freedom is found apart from the flesh. That's why you read in Romans, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians. It's this fight, this urge to devour others. Live self-sacrificially. Put others above yourself. Honor the Lord with your body. Why? Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So th- this is so hard for us because we live in a world. This is why I said digital way of life, because even our, we're hearing this every day. Don't give them control. You have your own choice. The reality is you're going to be a slave to something. You might as well be a slave to God. See, the flesh wants to frame this entire passage. And I want to really point this out, that, that sl- this is a slavery to a domineering and over- overbearing father. That faith, that Christianity isn't freedom, it's a prison. I imagine you've had friends tell you that, right? The church gathers every week. I've heard this from some of my non-believing friends. All you do is gather every week. You hear a list of commands that are burdensome and in fact are impossible. And all you do is you gather every week to heap on more guilt and you hope to come next week to confess how messed up you are and you do it again and again and again. And non-believers believe this, but here's the sad reality. Christians have also, we have bought the lie of the flesh, and we also think, God shouldn't tell me all. He just loves me, right? I don't need to change my life. I don't need to change my behavior. I'm going to do what I love. God is a forgiver. He's a love. He loves me. It's okay. I can do what I want. Stats really show that this is kind of the narrative that we as Christians have bought the lie, and we listen to the flesh more we listen to the faith. Here's some statistics I read If you're interested about this topic at all, um, to really talk about the body and and God's theology of it, Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy is an incredible book. But here in her book, she gives the statistics about, one, pornography. She says about two-thirds, this is pretty crazy, two-thirds of Christian men watch pornography at least monthly, the same rate as men who do not claim to be Christian. There is literally no difference between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to pornography consumption. Part of this is I think we as parents should do a better job of what kids have access to. You can develop these bad habits before they even really have the ability to say yes or no to things. But others of it, honestly, some Christians think that there's nothing wrong with this. We bought into this lie. This is what my flesh wants. I'm going to give it what it needs, even though it's not a need. The second category, and again, this is all grace, and I understand 
I mean, the stats show there are people who struggle with that in this room. And I want to give you grace and I want to give you love from, from God the Father. At the same time, we need to know the truth. The second category is cohabitation. A Gallup poll found that 49% of teens with religious backgrounds support living together before marriage. When Paul says here in verse um, 3 to flee sexual morality, sexual morality is a great list of things. And one of them, it, it's honestly, anything outside of sex inside of marriage is sexual immorality. Cohabitation is one of them. And we have at an alarming rate Christians doing this and thinking there's nothing wrong with it. And as a pastor, I want to give love and grace and I want to keep you around and all this stuff. But I want you to know this isn't what's best for you. And even if that wasn't the case, this just isn't what God says to do. The next one, homosexuality. I, I, I've said abortion. I've said vaccine mandates. I've said, get at me, bro. Okay, and homosexuality. In a 2014 Pew Research Center study, 51% of evangelical millennials, that's me, said same-sex behavior is morally acceptable. Why, when church historically has affirmed it's just one man, one woman? Again, we have so much grace. We actually have grace for those who have those homosexual tendencies. Stay tuned. We will talk about that. But we also have to call it what it is. It is against the design of God. How can we can say as a Christian, it's fine? It's because we bought the lie that the flesh wants what it wants. And we should just keep going. The question is, how do we get here? How do we get to the point where we kind of fall for these lies and allow the flesh to do whatever it wants? Charles Taylor, he has written incredible books. It's way, honestly, he's way too much of a brainiac. So just trust me when I tell you this. One thing that he kind of describes in our culture today is we have a culture of authority versus a culture of authenticity. And so culture of authority, you'll probably know, isn't very popular today. For centuries, mankind has recognized, okay, we need to institute authority. We need institutions. We need laws. Why? Because people are messed up right? In biblical terms, we say total depravity. We are depraved. We are sinners, right? And so we actually need external forces. We need institutions. We need the law. We need the government to restrict our ability to wreak havoc on others, but also we need restrictions or else we will wreak havoc on ourselves. We know how messed up we are and we need help. So you need to punish us. Say that we'll go to prison so I won't do this because I really want to do this. This is how mankind is. This is why we've instituted authority. This last, I would probably say since the Enlightenment, though, mankind has been on this pursuit, not of authority, to make sure it's the right authority, but we've been on a pursuit of authenticity above all else. Charles Taylor makes this argument, we've thrown out the need for authority, and everything is about authenticity. What does that mean? Authenticity recognizes that true freedom is only found within the self. What makes you, you? Boo, right? And remove any barrier that prohibits you from pursuing whatever you want. This sounds great as long as you're a holy, righteous person. It gets real sticky real fast when you have the flesh. Sinful desires that are raging against yourself, raging against others, and it winds up hurting a whole lot of people. Paul, I think, sees this uh, pushback in verse 8. He sees us not wanting to uh, obey authority. He says, consequently, anyone who rejects this, look, does not reject man. Other translations say, you're not rejecting man's authority. What you're doing is you're rejecting God's authority who gives you his Holy Spirit. He's saying you can justify. Look, Paul is saying, I'm not telling you to live this sexually moral life. I'm saying God is the one who's instituted it, and you have to follow God because he said it. We follow his authority because God, it's from God himself. And when God rules and reigns, here's the best thing you know. 
it is always for his glory. And here's the encouraging thing. It is always for your good. It may not feel that way. It may not sound like it's for your good, but it's always for your good. Possibly a better way to frame it. Here's our options. Write this down. Our options are slavery to the faith or slavery to the flesh. Slavery to the faith is far more superior than slavery to the flesh. Paul makes this exact case in Romans 6, starting in verse 20. Should be on the screen, Romans 6, 20. It says, is it not on there? Did I forget to tell them? That's amazing. All right. So let's go to Romans. Let's go old school and let's like grab our Bibles. Isn't that crazy? All right. Romans 6.20. Romans 6.20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. Look, slaves of sin. So what fruit was produced then from the things you were now ashamed of? The outcomes of these things is death. So he's saying, look, when you were a slave to the flesh, you reap death. Nothing happens except death and destruction. But, verse 22, now, since you've been set free from sin and become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. That same word we're looking at First Thessalonians. And the outcome is eternal life. So if you're slave to the flesh, what happens? Eternal death and destruction. You're slave to Jesus, slave to the faith, slave to the spirit. What happens? Eternal life, fruit, good things. I love that Paul says, though, you're still going to be a slave have a better master. And his name is King Jesus, not, not your own faith. I think one thing that I think we as pastors and as Christians need to do a better job of is sexual morality right now is being kind of marketed as freedom and it's good for you and everybody be happy. But the reality is it hurts yourself and it hurts other people. First Thessalonians 4, 6, it makes that point. He says, this means one must not transgress uh, and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. In other words, have sexual morality with somebody else because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we have previously told and warned you. When we allow sexual morality to run rampant, people get hurt, especially the vulnerable, especially those who cannot defend themselves. And progressive theology, people just say today, it's got to get better. Have, it kind of seems like we've gotten worse, Right? kind of seems like the more we hitch our wagon on flesh, the more we seem to reap destruction. And so this is the beauty of the Christian life. We have a beautiful sex ethic that seems restrictive, that seems one man, one woman for the rest of your life, that seems not entertaining is what they say, but brings so much life and brings so much dignity to everyone around. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Love Thy Body, on page 73, says this, talking about Paul, when how his, how uh, his, his writings were so radical. He says, at a time when wives were considered legally the possession of their husbands, Paul's writings were radical. By elevating the status of women, they delivered a severe blow to the double standard that was the pre-Christian norm. By keeping sex within marriage, the biblical ethic drove down the demand for abortion and infanticide. Children were born into families committed to loving and caring for them. How good is that? For too long, we, even as Christians, have bought the lie, oh, slavery to the flesh seems to be fun, but we have to follow Jesus. You guys ever, sin is the best, but Jesus said not to. No, it's actually the worst. And it has temporary pleasure, but has unending pain and destruction. I need to move forward, but I was going to share a story. Sigmund Freud, he believes that all relationships are ultimately erotic. I think a lot of what we live today is because of Sigmund Freud's thoughts, and it's infiltrated throughout the digital worldview. But anyways, you look into Freud's life and how it turned out. You look into his, his generations that he had under him, who were apprentices under him. 
So many of them committed suicide. So many of them lived off of anti-depression pills. So many of them had to act like their life was all together because people bought this lie, but they knew deep down they wanted to end their life because pleasure is never enough. Sexual immorality will never satisfy. But I don't have time to talk about that. So sign me up for the kind of slavery that leads to overall, overall flourishing for mankind. And this is the slavery to King Jesus. But here's the thing that I think most of us in this room identify more so. Some would rather be a slave to the flesh than a slave to the faith. I know. However, I think most of us in our congregation tonight, you want to be a slave to the faith, but you still feel enslaved by the flesh. You're like, sign me up. I know the flesh is bad. I know Jesus is good. I want to do what Jesus has called me to do. And yet I still find myself falling into the sin of the flesh. I know in the deep recess of, our, of your heart, you want to live holy. You want to follow verse four. Control your own body in holiness and honor. How amazing does that sound? I think if we had time to kind of get together and talk about our experiences. I think there's many of you possibly, you went to youth camp. Didn't you love youth camp? Cried every Thursday night. It was like perfect timing, right? But what you would do is you go to youth camp and you'd pray your temptations away. You just say, God, I'm tired of this addiction. You come home, you have one, maybe two good weeks and you return back to your sin like a dog returns to its vomit. And you have even more shame over you that God doesn't love you. Even more so, there's some maybe in this room. You hit puberty. You grew up in the church. You hit puberty. And you felt the horror of not being attracted to the opposite sex. So every week you come to church. You would tell people, I have an unspoken prayer request knowing you just want to be attracted to the opposite sex. You did not sign up for this kind of sin to distort your life. Maybe you've gone to Christian counseling. Maybe your marriage has been where it's at because of your flesh, because of your rage and your anger, and you've gone to Christian counseling. You've admitted all the things they told you to admit, and yet you still feel dominated by anger and rage, and you still have divorce as an option on the table. Maybe you fasted. You heard that you can heal your addiction by fasting, and yet you're still drowning in defeat. And I've been thinking about those people as I read this verse, specifically verse 1. Brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you. So this is supposed to be encouraging. Look, as you received instruction from us, what? On how you should live and please God. And you're thinking, I want to please you, God. I can't even live in a way that pleases myself. The flesh seems to just have dominion over me. I can't seem to win. And I think the way that we're positioning this fight against the flesh has done more harm than good. First of all, I don't think we're helping anybody when we act like holiness is attained overnight. If you've been around our church for any length of time, you'll hear this a lot, right? Trying to behave like Jesus leads to death. Training to become like Jesus leads to life. We believe this process of becoming like Jesus takes time. We're not telling you to run the marathon tomorrow. Good luck if you do, especially if you've been eating Cheetos and on the couch all week, right? What we're saying is maybe get up and walk. The point is, are you taking the next step in becoming more like Jesus? And the reality is Jesus has grace for you. He knows it's not supposed to be achieved overnight. In fact, I think God designed it so that it doesn't have to be achieved overnight because the beauty in the Christian life is the process of becoming more like him and learning more and more how much he loves us when we do well, even more so how much he loves us when we fail. 
There's a lot of reasons maybe why you're not experiencing victory. I think for some of us, we actually are spending too much time in the digital world. So your, your mind, your affections, they're swayed. They are, they are hurt because you constantly are consuming the things of the world. That's why I told you, get off your phone. Get off the media this month, right? Maybe you have father wounds. And honestly, you haven't confessed them. You haven't addressed them. You haven't allowed Jesus to love you there. Maybe you're holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness. So I'm not saying tonight everything's going to be perfect, but I'm saying this is a reality and you'd be surprised how many in this room feel the same weight. We all feel like failures, but God loves you. So how do we balance these things? And I think chief among them for reasons we're not making advancements and fighting the flesh is our misunderstanding of the gospel. Hear this. This is for people who are children of God. If you've not believed in Jesus, if you've not surrendered to him and say, not, not my will, but yours be done. If you haven't done this, this doesn't apply. But if you have, write this down. Your sin doesn't make you leave the Father's house. It makes you grieve the Father's heart. We can't lean into the Father's heart if we keep assuming that we've been kicked out of the Father's house. Does that make sense? We keep thinking, I imagine it'd be so hard to parent my child if they keep thinking, are you kicking me out tonight? No, that's not what I'm saying. Oh, where am I going to sleep tonight? No, you are in the family of God. You are my child, but I want what's best for you and your addiction, your behaviors, your stubborn heart is grieving me, is what God is saying. This entire letter is keep pressing on despite all the affliction because God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. You can mess up today. You can mess up tomorrow. You can mess up every day of your life. God still has grace for you. You will always be in his house. We need to stop drowning in a sea of condemnation. Sam Alberry, if you're somebody who struggles within the depths of your soul, it seems like there is a desire for homosexual tendencies. I encourage you to pick up any of Sam Alberry's books. He's a Christian pastor who is same-sex attracted, but he is celibate. He doesn't approve it. He's saying, these are just my desires, but I'm allowing Jesus to call me to something greater. He has this quote that is so good. He says, desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. The reflection of sin and the distortion it brings on the world and on our flesh and is not a reflection of God and his purpose for us. But it's so important It is impossible to kick out the sins of the flesh if you think it's possible to be kicked out of the Father's house. You didn't enter the family of God because of merit. You won't be kicked out of it because of merit either. So key. The blood of Christ has washed you. He has redeemed you. You are declared righteous. You are forgiven. You are a child of God, but he loves you and he wants you to look more and more like he designed you to. And it's gonna be tough. My daughters, they got a lot to learn. But I know they're only six, four and three, right? Yeah. There's a process to this. So as we close, I want us to get real practical here. Is there a practice from the way of Jesus that will align our hearts with our bodies? Is there a way that we can kind of take steps and say, okay, I want to honor God. This all sounds amazing, but then I'll go home and my flesh, my body will do something else. How can we demolish the stronghold of the flesh over our bodies that have been declared already righteous by Christ. I believe there's a a ton, and I hope that you go to growth groups this week. I hope that you sign up for our spiritual formation retreat that's in October. We're going to really dive into this and try to help give you a personal plan. But I want to introduce to you tonight a dietary way of life. So we've done the 
digital way of life, and I hope you're continuing to do it. The ideas were habit stacking. So the first week was just digital life. The second week was digital plus devotional. This week is digital plus devotional plus dietary. Now hear me, this has nothing to do with body type. It has none of that, okay? What I want to challenge you to do, though, is to abstain. Okay, for some, what is this dietary way of life? For some of you, it's literally just to abstain from soda. You know, it's weird. My dad does soda water. I don't get it. All you LaCroix people, you just need to cast that out in the name of Jesus. I'm just saying that is just, I, I was about to say, no, that's just bad, okay? Maybe you want to cast out sugar. Maybe it's desserts. Fully transparent for me, I'm just going to eat one meal a day. I want this to hurt a little. Why am I telling you to do this? Because the reality is when we have the ability to say no to food, it empowers us to say no to other temptations of the flesh. There's a direct correlation between our relationship with food and gluttony and our relationship with all of the other temptations of the flesh. Uh, Thomas A. Kempis, in Imitation of Christ, he has this quote. He says, Refrain from gluttony, and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. Throughout church history, literally, people knew this. Refrain from food, fast. Do something that abstains and it empowers you. Why? You learn to say no to this desire. It empowers you to say no to other desires. So the key here is not like, good, I want to lose 15 pounds. That's not it. The key here is I want to have control over my body in holiness and honor. And I'm going to try this way because I know I can do it. And by God's grace, you'll be empowered to do this all the more. How does this practice empower us to live a life that is holy and honors God? Write this down. This is it. We don't, this is an encouragement. We don't control our bodies to make ourselves more precious to God. We control our bodies to make God more precious to us. Some of us, we've missed out on the grace Jesus has. We've missed out on the words Jesus has given us. God desperately wants to speak to you. But even little things like food get in the way. I know for me, when I'm like not feeling well, when I'm depressed, when I'm lazy, what do I do? I go get some food. What if that right there is actually an opportunity? God is giving you an ache for a purpose and it's not to fill it with food, it's to fill it with him. And so we're doing this, not so we can say, okay, God, now you must love me because I'm fasting. That's not it at all. We're doing this though because we're making space for the grace of God and for the person and work of Jesus to come in and do what only he can do. So honestly, please, tonight, even right now, think what is it you're gonna abstain from? Is it one meal? Is it a certain type of food? Is it a time schedule, intermittent fasting, something? You need to learn the power of saying no to the flesh. And a great way to start is to say no to food. We've said this a lot. Maybe this will help you in a different way. Why are we doing this? Our cheaper desires must be killed so that our deepest desires may be fulfilled. A cheap desire, I need dessert. It, gives, it, it promises life and satisfaction and goodness. It gives you a tummy ache, high cholesterol and fatigue, right? It's a cheap desire. But then we're saying, okay, if I'm desiring this, is there something else my heart is aching for? Am I aching for more life and satisfaction? Okay, I'm going to say no to dessert. 
I'm going to say yes to you, Jesus. I'm going to sit at your feet. I'm going to be around you. This is so important for us to apply this principle. For so long, we as a church have said, don't sin. This is a sin of the flesh. Stop it. And we have some powerful story at the end to make you cry. And we're like, yes, I'm not going to sin anymore. And we go home. We eat our Twinkie. We're like, okay, this. And then we just start to do whatever, right? We think the, the key to this perfect Christian life is just to be inspired enough. Honestly, so much of it is to surrender to Jesus, but it's to put forth these practices in life. And maybe this dietary way of life for the next week may change your whole life. Not because of the not food, because you made space for Jesus to speak to you, to love you, and to tap into your deepest desires of becoming more and more like Jesus. Would you join me in that this week? Starts tomorrow, so have dessert tonight. You know what I'm saying? But tomorrow, will you join me in that? A digital way of life, a devotional way of life, and a dietary way of life.